Welcome to Who's Talking. This is D.G. Martin, and my guest, maybe my favorite guest, is Jody Magnus, who is the keynote Distinguished Professor for Teaching Excellence in Early Judaism at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And she's a freak, not a freak, not frequent enough, but she's been on this program a lot of times. And I'm always excited about it because, uh, Jody Magnus, you're, you're something. You're a great guest. And I think I can just maybe get by with asking you just one question, and then you start talking about all the things you've done. For those of you who don't uh, remember or don't know about Jody Magnus, uh, she's an exciting and uh, much-valued member of the faculty at Carolina teaching um, early Judaism, but in her capacity, both as a scholar and as an archaeologist. Uh, Jody Magnus, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me back, DG. Well, thank you for coming back. Um, we're excited because after a downturn, I think, of two years, you were back in action in your summer mm. project uh, with an archaeological project in Israel. Mm -hmm. Tell us about the project and then tell us uh, about getting back into business this past summer. Right, yeah. So, um, so since 2011, I have been directing excavations at an ancient Jewish village in Galilee called Hukok, spelled H-U-Q-O-Q. -Q. Um, if your listeners are interested, we have a big website, hukok.org. And uh, the... Um, in our excavations, we've been uncovering remains from different periods, but our primary focus has been on the period called Late Antiquity, which is the 4th, 5th, and 6th centuries AD. And that means the period when the Roman Empire became a Christian empire. Christianity became the legal and official religion of the Roman Empire. And Jewish villages, like the village of Hukok, came under Christian rule. And I started the project in 2011 um, because I wanted to see what was the fate of a Jewish village like this when it came under Christian rule. Uh, the reason is many of my colleagues, especially in Israel, think that Christian rule was oppressive to Jews and that settlements like Hukok suffered um, and even declined and disappeared. And my uh, impression from the archaeology was always exactly the opposite, that these towns and villages continued to prosper and flourish in the 4th, 5th, and 6th centuries. So I wanted to see, uh, to test a case and, and see through Hukok what was the picture. And the picture that we've been bringing to light does confirm my impression. It doesn't mean that this is true of every settlement, but it does at least mean that at Hukok we have evidence of a Jewish village that continued to prosper and flourish under Christian rule. But as part of the remains that we are bringing to light uh, are the remains of a monumental synagogue building that was built somewhere around the year 400 A.D., and that's right in the middle of the period that I'm interested in. And uh, the extraordinary thing about this building, aside from the, its size, it's a large building, is the fact that it was paved inside entirely with mosaic floors. And the mosaics are divided into panels, most of which depict different biblical stories. And pretty much since 2012, when we uncovered the first part of this floor, every summer we've been bringing to light more and more of it. And uh, we now have a very wide array of different biblical stories. Um, and so that's been pretty much the picture every summer since 2011, except for the two COVID years, 2020 and 2021, we weren't in the field. So this summer, 2022, we were back in the field again. And every summer I do this through UNC Study Abroad. I offer UNC undergraduates the opportunity to participate for academic credit. Uh, we always have a great group of students. I have other 
uh, universities in North America that participate as well, a consortium um, that includes the University of Toronto, Brigham Young University, and Austin College in Texas. So they send students and faculty to work with us, and it's a wonderful experience for everybody. So this summer, 2022, we were back with a group of UNC students. We also have graduate students from UNC that work with us, some in staff capacities. And um, just overall, it was it was a wonderful, wonderful summer. It was great to be back in the field. I think everybody enjoyed being out again after COVID. And uh, as always, we had some very exciting discoveries. Well, tell us about the exciting discoveries. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> Um, so, so we've been sort of uh, systematically bringing different parts of the synagogue building to light. It's a big rectangular building. The layout is what's called is a basilica. Is there anything here that you could compare it to in the way, trying to visualize I know. what that, what um, that might have looked like? Um, yeah, it's, I can't, I can't think of anything in this area. It's very similar to the synagogue at Capernaum which is only a couple of miles away. Mm -hmm. So if any of your listeners and, have and been there. And is that Christians, at least students of the Bible, are will be familiar, familiar with are the that. New Testament that's are right. familiar with Capernaum. Yes, And they, that's right. did they have a, a synagogue too? Yes, they... that's right, they did. Um, Capernaum, which of course was the base of Jesus's Galilean ministry, is only a couple of miles away from Hukok. And uh, like Hukok, it was a Jewish uh, village. It was larger than Hukok, but it, it's very similar to Hukok. And it has a synagogue, which is very similar to Hukok synagogue and dates uh, to very roughly the same period. Um, so if your listeners have visited Capernaum, then they would be familiar with the synagogue building there. And our synagogue looks very similar to that one. Well, I've never been to Capernaum. Oh, you haven't. Oh, you're missing out. We, well, well um, did, did the... Um, Architecture of the uh, synagogue at Hukok um, looked like synagogues other places during that time, like yes. what might have been in Rome, for instance. Or well, of, uh, sort of. I mean, you know, like everything else, things are regional. So there's, you know, some broadly shared characteristics, but also there's a degree of regionalism. So the kind of synagogue that you find at Hukok and also at Capernaum is a kind of building that's typical of Galilee to the point where it's called a Galilean-type mm. synagogue. Um, but the, in terms of the architecture, it's basically a big rectangular building. By big, I mean... Uh, our synagogue is about 20 meters long. A meter is about a yard. So our synagogue is about 20 meters long and about 15 meters wide. So you can imagine two long walls on the east and the west sides and the two short walls on the north and the south mm -hmm. sides. And the main entrance or entrances were in the south wall, which is the direction that faces Jerusalem, which in Judaism is the direction of prayer. And then when you entered the building— there was a row of columns on a low stone wall called a stylobate to support the roof. The columns, of course, support the roof. And they wrapped around three sides of the interior in the shape of the Greek letter pi or the Hebrew letter chet. And they divided the interior into a central area or space called a nave. And these uh, narrower areas running around three sides, the east, the north, and the west, um, and those are called aisles. And so for those of your listeners who might remember their Art History One class <laughs> way back when, um, in layout, this is what's called a basilica. It's a basilica oh, layout. Okay. So that's that's the kind of uh, building that we have. Um, but what distinguishes our synagogue from most other buildings of this type is, again, the mosaic floors and the the scenes that are depicted in the mosaic floors. Did you know about the mosaics? Oh, no. Nobody nobody knew about the mosaics. And I like to say that, believe me, if anybody had had any idea 
that there were mosaics like this at Hukok, it wouldn't be Jody Magnus excavating <laughs> the site. It would have been excavated by somebody else a long time well, ago. We don't know about that. Yeah, um, yeah, I can tell one. you that for sure. Well, uh, as you progress through your project, how do you know how far along you are? Is it at, we're two-thirds of the way through the building right. or, we, or we're, we're 100 percent through but we're going back right. to clean up? Where are, where are you? Well, we, you know, over the course of time, we've excavated different parts of the building. And so we now know how long the building is and how wide it is. So we know exactly how much more we have to excavate um, of the parts that aren't excavated. So um, we've been able to uh, establish that over the course of time. So you got five more years or no, two more actually, years or ten more no, years? No, no, actually, I have I have one more year. <laughs> what do you mean by that? I have one more year. So next next summer, by next summer, we will have finished uh, excavating all of the mosaics. So we'll have, we'll have finished that. There, there's a lot around the synagogue. There's a lot of stuff around the synagogue. I mean, it's not just the synagogue. There's a big courtyard on the side. There are other buildings around it. There's also a very significant late medieval reuse of the building. So, um, you know, it, it is possible, it would be possible to continue to excavate there really indefinitely uh, because it's such a rich site in, in terms of having important different remains from different periods. Uh, but um, but as I say, I've been there since 2011, um, and one of the goals was to excavate the synagogue. We'll be done with that after next summer. And, you know, I like to uh, remind people that the goal of archaeology is not excavation, it's publication. Uh, because what we in archaeology do is excavate in order to retrieve data to answer our research questions. But the goal is not the retrieval of the data. The goal is the processing and publication of the data. So we have a lot of material that we've accumulated now since 2011, and it's going to take years to process and publish all of that, uh, all of that material. Well, you, we, we know a little bit about what that will be. You, you got a, a, an idea of uh, what the publication will be. Mm -hmm. So what – but let me ask the question this way. What have you learned that's important uh, from your excavations? Right. So the big – I mean, oh, gosh, it's so much. But for the purposes of this synagogue, the late Roman synagogue, the one that dates to around 400, um, so so first of all, in terms of that synagogue and its village, we have – we have shown that this is a Jewish village that prospered and flourished under Christian rule in the 4th, 5th, and 6th centuries. So that's very important. Um, the mosaics uh, and the size of the building are important because um, we don't really have another synagogue that's quite analogous to this. Uh, we have other synagogues that are similar, but— uh, You mentioned Capernaum Yeah, earlier, Capernaum, right? but Capernaum doesn't have mosaic floors, for example— uh, we have another synagogue nearby at a site called Wadi Hammam, which is very similar to ours, just a little smaller in size. But there, almost none of their mosaics are preserved. So the repertoire of mosaics that we have is really important in enriching our understanding of Judaism in late antiquity. Um, what kinds of biblical stories were the Jews uh, using to decorate their building? Why did they select these stories? What was the meaning of these stories to them? You know, there. I mean, what you can do with the mosaics is endless. There's there and it will be endless. I mean, once, you know, people are already publishing, you know, about our mosaics because we have we've tried to make them as accessible as possible, as quickly as possible. Um, and I'm sure that that process is going to go on indefinitely. So, um, so yes, there's the mosaics. Um, we have uh, a very significant, as I mentioned, reuse of the synagogue building in the late Middle Ages, the 14th century A.D., 
Um, it's actually a reuse one. I'm, I'm interested in this. Yeah. And let, so let's take a break and then come oh, back okay. and talk about the reuse of the yeah, synagogue. Yeah, sure. I'm, Absolutely. I'm, I, I've got a wide open mind. <laughs> okay. Listen, uh, for those of you who joined us late, I'm visiting with uh, Dr. Jody Magnus, a, a professor at Chapel Hill, a much uh, beloved professor at Chapel Hill, and the organizer of uh, archaeological expeditions in every summer except the except the COVID. COVID we'll learn more about that um, uh, when we come back. Welcome back to Who's Talking. This is D.G. Martin. I'm visiting with Jody Magnus, a, a keen and distinguished professor who is both a religious historian and an archaeologist. And we're talking right now about her archaeological project at a place called Hukok. And uh, Jody Bangus, when we stopped talking, we talking about uh, the, the your, your focus has been on this uh, fourth century mm-hmm. synagogue. And along the way, you found out that uh, after everything was over in the uh, later on, yeah. this destroyed facility was reused. Mm-hmm. Tell us about that. Yeah, this is this is um this is a, a an aspect of our expedition that is just as important, if not more important, than the original synagogue with the mosaics. But the mosaics get all the attention. Mm. Um, so the original synagogue, the late Roman synagogue, was built somewhere around the year 400. It's decorated with these amazing mosaics. It was a basilica. Uh, and although we, we can determine, based on the archaeological material, radiocarbon dating, pottery coins, when that synagogue was built, so that's why we get that date of around 400, we cannot determine when the building went out of use. We don't have the ar- the archaeology doesn't enable us to to mm. determine that. What we can see is that the building was used for some period of time, can't tell how long, uh, and at some point it goes out of use. It's abandoned, and when it was abandoned, uh, whoever had been using using it up until that point cleared it out, and they left it empty and standing. Now, this is this is in itself something very unusual because in archaeology, when you have a public building, meaning a building that belongs to the community and not a private-like house or something like that, and it goes out of use, then usually one of two things happens. Either it gets converted into use for another purpose, like they'll begin to install industrial installations in the building or divide it up and make little dwelling units or they'll use it for some other purpose, and that will be clear in the archaeology. Or it will start to get robbed out for its building materials because in antiquity, everything got recycled. So they would pull out the stones from the walls and, you know, use them for other purposes, right? They would dismantle it. Neither of those things happened in this case. So the building was left empty and standing. And it stood for, I don't know, we don't know, but it stood hundreds of years, something. At some point— the superstructure of the building collapsed. We, we we don't know when. We don't know why. It may have been an earthquake. It may have just been the natural course of time. The walls collapsed with the ceiling. The superstructure wasn't a ceiling. The roof collapsed. And when that happened, that the collapse of the superstructure, those parts fell onto the mosaic floor and bashed up the floor. So that's what caused damage to our mosaics. The rest of the parts of the floor were left intact. But the building still stood like that, empty, unused, but kind of half in ruins. And the mosaics were still visible. They weren't covered up. We can tell that they weren't covered up. And then 
almost a millennium after the original synagogue had been built, in the early 14th century AD, so we're in the later Middle Ages, right? Somebody came and they cleared out the building and they rebuilt it. They took those pieces of I'm just architecture. Trying, excuse me for interrupting yeah. you, but I'm trying to. This would be what uh, about the time of the Crusades? That's or? right. That's right. You're right. It's about the time of the Crusades. It's after the First Crusade, but you're right. This is very roughly ballpark. The time of the Crusades, actually, in this period, the country was under the rule of a Muslim dynasty called the Mamluks. But you're you're right in sort of being in that kind of general area. And originally, when we dated this later building, we thought it was in fact from the period of the Crusades. It's just a little bit later, but your your ballpark not too far off there. So somebody came. They they pulled out these architectural pieces that had fallen onto the floor, right, for reuse. Excuse me for interrupting yeah. you, but the other thing that happened <laughs> is that other than the near maybe the possibility of some influence for the Crusaders. This is Muslim territory. It's Muslim territory. We don't Muslim think it has residents. to do with it. That's right. We don't think it has to do with the Crusaders. And well, but then back to the other thing. These would be the residents would be uh, uh, Muslim. We'll come back to that. All right. Uh, well, I'll, I'll we'll come you, back to that. Well, right. Well, then, the mystery of who back. did this. Right. Yeah. The mystery of what is it and who did it. Right. Which has taken us a long time to figure out. So, um, so the the whoever it was came and they pulled out these pieces of stone that had collapsed because they used they reused them to rebuild the building. Um, and they they did an extraordinary thing, actually. They lifted the stylobate, which was the foundation for the original columns. They lifted it out of out of its original position with the original columns, lifted it one meter, that's about a yard, uh, above the level of the original mosaic floor um, to lay a new floor, right? So they have a new floor about about one meter or about, you know, three, about a yard above the original floor. The floor being would... They're, they the made ground, a new. They made the... right. They made a new floor, but their floor is not reusing the original floor. They lay a new floor on top about, of the, on, uh, top. on top and above. So about a meter above, about about a yard above the original floor. Um, and well, let me say, I'm sorry. Yeah. But uh, no, I, I no, that's okay. That, but the new floor, and then the whole floor is below the new floor. Yeah. But what's in between? Uh, I, okay. Right. Okay. Yes. Yes. So they 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 lifted up those those they took out those building fragments. They lifted the stylobate with the columns to reuse with their floor about a meter above the original floor, and they dumped layers and layers of dirt fill just dirt piles and piles of dirt on top of the original mosaic floor to the level of a meter above the original floor, and that's where they laid their new floor. Right. And their new floor consists of a very, very thick and very hard, almost like concrete mixture. I mean, you practically need a jackhammer to get through it. And that was actually just the makeup of the floor. The actual floor was a new mosaic laid on top of that. Their floor had mosaics also. But unfortunately, we only have a couple of little patches of their mosaics that have been preserved, but enough to say that they also had a mosaic floor. Now, they not only did that, but they also enlarged the size of the building. They made it bigger to the south and they made it bigger to the west. So whereas the original building was about 20 by 14 to 15 meters, the new building is about 24 by 17 meters. So it's substantially bigger, but it has the same plan and it reuses the stylobate. And that stylobate with columns, which is now reused and lifted, is supported on the building pieces that they reused from the original building. 
And uh, unlike the original building, the new one has benches around uh, the interior. The original building didn't have benches. So the new one has uh, two rows of benches, stone benches, on the east, the north, and the south sides. Now, we, uh, my staff and I, have been for years trying to figure out what this later building is uh, and who built it, right? Well, um, when did you first know this We building? noticed it very early, early on. At the we very noticed beginning. it very early on, although we weren't sure. If, it took a while to nail down the date because the dating information comes from the pottery that we find in the f- dirt fills that they dumped below their floor, right? So it's taken a while. Um, In our earlier publications, we thought that the building actually was Crusader period, so 12th, 13th century. But now we see that the pottery goes a little later, and we can date it to the early 14th century. I'm going to interrupt you. Yeah. We're just going to take a quick break. Okay. Uh, If you join us late, I'm visiting with Jody Magnus, professor at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill, about her project in Hukok in the Holy Land in Israel, archaeological project. And we'll uh, talk some more about that when we come back after this short break. Welcome back to Who's Talking. This is D.G. Martin. I'm visiting with Jody Magnus. We're talking about her archaeological project in the Holy Land, your, you and your coll- many colleagues. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, as, as we stopped... We're talking about not the uh, uh, archaeological project as it focused on an early fifth, uh, fourth, fifth, fifth century um, uh, synagogue, but a, a brand new project. Right. Well, it's not a new project. It's a, it, it's the same project. I mean, it's all excavating the same thing, but it's a later reuse of the original building, right? Because when we dig, we start at the top, right, and we work our way down, which means you start by digging the very latest levels and you work your way down to earlier levels. So on our way down to the synagogue with the mosaics, we found, right, that this building had a later reuse, now, right? I, since, since you mentioned reuse, okay, so I'm thinking, what, is it another uh, synagogue? Well, this is this is what we struggled with. For, we, we have struggled with it for years because this later building clearly was an enormous public building. And One of the things that didn't make sense to us is by the time this building was built in the 14th century, um, Hukok was a small village called Yakuk. It was smaller than the original ancient village. And so what is this giant public building doing in a in a tiny Galilean village in the later Middle Ages? I mean, we couldn't we couldn't figure it out. Right. And and so. So, what were your options? I mean, well, I, I'm saying right. is this this is not likely to be more another Jewish well, thing, right? Probably Muslim and well, maybe so Christian. Exactly. What, I mean, what, so we were, you know, right. So the options are: it's a church, it's a mosque, or it's a synagogue. Right. Those are basically your options. The problem is we don't have anything in the building that that clearly identifies it one way or the other. So there are no inscriptions. There's no religious iconography or symbols. Um, there's no liturgical furniture. Like, for example, if you had a mihrab, you know, the Muslim prayer niche that, that indicates the direction of prayer or a Torah shrine for a synagogue, right? We don't, there's nothing like that in this building. So there are no there are no signs that say, oh, this is definitely one thing or another. But can't you go to the outside history of uh, that region? Well, this and- is the problem. The, 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 what, virtually nothing is known 
about Jewish settlement in rural Galilee in this period. It is a black hole. It's unbelievable. Almost nothing is known. And uh, very little actually is known about Hukok slash Yakuk. So, uh, so over the course of time, uh, we, we came to the conclusion that um, we ruled out the various possibilities. We looked at the, the the building. We looked at the way it's laid out. We looked at the the plan, the the you know the benches, the whole thing, and we eliminated the possibility that it's a church. It doesn't have any resemblance at all to a church of this period. Any churches of this period, whether they're in the Holy Land or not, it has no resemblance at all to mosques in this period. It also has no resemblance to khans. A khan is like a, a way station. And these khans or way stations are quite a khan, K-H-A-N. If it, a waste, waste, a way station. What, so what does that mean? In the, in, 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 in the um, Muslim world, you often had um, sort of uh, uh, way stations established on roads where travelers could stop, like mm-hmm. inns, right? Where travelers could stop and they could, you know, get food and, and water and have their horses or donkeys rest and all of that, right? So, so we, so we do have Hans. We do have these these way stations in this region in this period. But this building has no resemblance to any of them either. So it was kind of a process of elimination. And through the process of elimination, we decided that the only kind of building that this possibly could be is a synagogue. There's no other choice. It doesn't resemble anything else. So we came to the conclusion that in the early 14th century, our building was rebuilt as a synagogue. But then that raises the question of who rebuilt it as a synagogue and why was it rebuilt at that time as a synagogue? Now, you asked about who were the inhabitants of Yakuk. By this time, the village is known as Yakuk. So who were the inhabitants of the village? And if you go and you look at scholarship in this period, the universal opinion is that by this time, Yakuk was a Muslim village, that the the village had shrunk in size and that the inhabitants were Muslims. We think now that some of the inhabitants at least were Jewish. So we don't know if all of the village was Jewish, but we think that some of the inhabitants must have been Jewish. Again, you have this giant synagogue building in the middle of the village. But but why? Then it raises the question, why is this built in this period? So my assistant director, Dennis Mitzi of the University of Malta, and I just published a big scholarly article about this. And um, we examined uh, what lies behind it. And we think that there are two factors going on, a big factor and a more minor factor. So the big factor is uh, something called the Barid. So what is the Barid? The Barid was an international highway in the Muslim world, right? That's what it's called. An international highway is a Barid. So in the early 14th century, the uh, Mamluk Sultan, the ruler, uh, established a new international highway, a new Barid to connect Cairo and Damascus. Now, there had been earlier forms of this highway, right? So the connection between Cairo and Damascus, obviously, is going to be very important. There had been other highways that had that, that had connected Cairo and Damascus, and they ran roughly through this area. But they had passed to the east of Hukok, to the east of Yakuk. And now this new highway actually ran along side Yakuk. It actually goes up the south side and the east side of the site, and then it continues northwards towards Fat. You told me earlier that there weren't any, that the best highway was along close to the uh, sea. That's right. But if you think about the, the, 
that's absolutely correct. The easiest road was always the coastal road. But if you think about connecting Cairo with Damascus, and Damascus, of course, lies inland and northeast of the Sea of Galilee, then your shortest and easiest route is going to take you inland, right? So there were various iterations of these highways under the Muslim rulers that went inland near the area of the Sea of Galilee, sometimes to the east, sometimes a little to the west. This particular iteration that was established in the early 14th century actually runs along Yakuk. It runs along the south side, it runs along the east side, and it continues north towards Fat, Safed, and then it continues up towards uh, up towards um, Damascus. And so what we have now in where this did, particular— Where did the um, Muslim ruler— Reside. Well, the Mamluks actually originated in Egypt. They were, yes. And so so this is why the connection between uh, Egypt and Syria becomes so important uh, in this period. And so, uh, so um, what we have now for a period of about 80 years, because at some point the, the road again, the line of the road was changed, right? But what we have for then a period of about 80 years is a major international imperially sponsored highway that runs right alongside Yakuk. And all of the money and all of the traffic that goes along with the establishment of that major highway, that all goes right by our site. How did you come? When did you come to this conclusion? And was it an exciting moment? It was exciting. We, we, it's interesting because all the years we've been working, and, and we have many colleagues in Israel who come and visit us during the, the dig, and we'd always showed them this building, and we were always like, well, we don't know what to do with this. And, and it's funny, the highway was known, but nobody ever mentioned it to us. I mean, it was like nobody ever said, oh, yeah, by the way, there's this. And, and so it's actually published. There was a, a, a survey that was done by two Israeli archaeologists named uh, uh, Yigal and Yotam Tepper, a father and son, um, who did a survey of the area around Hukok in, um, in the 1990s and then published it in 2000 in Hebrew. It's, it's published only in Hebrew. Not easy to get a hold of this publication. But I happened to be going back through it. I was reading back through it, and I came up on this page where they talk about this barid going because they documented it in their survey, right? As going right alongside, the barid, and it was barid the barid is the, is the name. Of, that's right. And, and then suddenly it was like, you know, it was one of those aha moments. Wait a minute. We have this made in the in the 14th century. That's the date of our building. This must be. And so you're connected. all excited. Was all excited. And did you call the uh, the other the father and son? No, actually, did not. I called. I, I talked to my my assistant director Dennis. Right, <laughs> and and so, so so this was like the main thing. This is the main thing that we think is going on. But there's there's something else that's going on too. And that is this time is sort of take a break. Good oh, time, okay. Good time yep. to take a break. Okay, it is visiting, a good time to take a break. Visiting with Jody Magnus, we're talking about something that's exciting that I did never knew about until this moment about another building at uh, the archaeological site that Jody has been working on for ten years now. So uh, we're, we're going to learn more about that after this short break. Welcome back to Who's Talking. This is D.G. Martin. I'm visiting with Professor Jody Magnus and exciting our report about her activities and those of her colleagues in a village called Hukok, uh, in in uh, what we would call what we would some some of us would call the Holy Land, and we learned a lot about Hukok and the synagogue there. And then all of a sudden, when we think we got our arms around what your project is, you bring in you bring to us. 
There's another building. Or yeah. There was, an, there was another building on top of the, the yeah, synagogue. Yeah, exactly. And uh, you, before we took the break, you were explaining to us <laughs> a little bit about how you figured out what might, what probably mm-hmm. was the mm-hmm. circumstances yeah. that somebody else could come along or some other group of people could come along almost a thousand years after the uh, synagogue at Hukok and built on top of it yep. another Probably yes. another synagogue. Yes, that's right. And so, so as I mentioned, we think that there are two big fact or two factors that underlie what's going on here: a big factor and a little factor. So the big factor is the establishment of this international highway by the Mamluk Sultan, the Muslim ruler, in the early 14th century, um, which would have brought with it all of the money and all of the traffic and you know resources just going right by the site. So we think that's the major factor. But there's another factor. And that is that by the 12th, 13th centuries, Hukok slash Yakuk came to be venerated as the site where the prophet Habakkuk, who's one of the 12 minor prophets in the Hebrew Bible, as the site where the prophet Habakkuk is buried. Until today, there's a tomb of Habakkuk right by the highway near, no, near Hukok. Habakkuk? I don't know. I know how to say it in Habakkuk. Hebrew. Is that <laughs> yeah. how you say it in well, English? In, in Hebrew, it's Habakkuk. And I, I'm never sure how to say it in English, but um, how do you say it? Uh, Habakkuk, I guess. Habakkuk? I guess. Habakkuk? I mean, I mean, okay. We studied it for a week, and I can't remember a thing. What did Habakkuk, what did he uh, contribute no, to the Never mind. It's one care. of the 12 minor prophets. But at yeah. any rate, so, so he the, lives nearby, maybe. Or he's no, 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 no. Look. There's no, he never, uh, that prophet, I'm going to say have a cook. But anyway, that prophet was never anywhere near our site, probably. But what happens is, is that by the 12th, 13th centuries, the similarity in the name, Hukok, oh. have a cook, because in Hebrew it's Chavakuk, right? So Hukok, Chavakuk, it, it sounds similar, the, it rings similar. So by the 12th, 13th centuries, a tradition had developed that that prophet was buried at the site. And uh, there was a tomb. Now, the tomb that exists today is not the original tomb or not what, what was venerated originally as the tomb. So the tomb moved around around the site in different periods. But somehow in the, you know, so... What you get, when when you get the establishment of this highway then, what does that do? It facilitates traffic of pilgrims to the tomb. And you begin to get huge numbers of pilgrims, mostly Jewish, but not all, who now are traveling on this highway to visit the tomb of Habakkuk. Now, that traffic had started before and continued after the highway went out of use, but the, there's this huge influx, right, just around when, when the highway is built because the highway facilitates it. And so we think that that um, the, the second factor that contributes to what's going on here is the influx of pilgrim traffic. And we actually have pilgrim accounts, Jewish pilgrim accounts from uh, the 14th, 15th centuries that talk about visiting the tomb of Habakkuk at Yakuk. And one of the most important is an early 14th century traveler from a Jewish uh, traveler from France whose name was Ashtoria Parhi, who visits Yakuk. There was actually a whole kind of a itinerary that these pilgrims would go on as they kind of circled around Galilee. And, and there, were co- other, there were other uh, tombs that other they visited in other places. And this mm-hmm. was—so this was one of them. And when he gets—when Ashtoria Parhi uh, gets to uh, Yakuk, because he calls it Yakuk— what he says, he, write, he writes in Hebrew, he says, and there we saw a synagogue with a very old floor. 
And we think that, so he's there in the early 14th century. We think that he said, when he says synagogue with a very old floor, he's referring to the original mosaic floor, not the new floor, uh, which at that point had not yet been covered over by the later floor. And what all of this indicates is that, that the original synagogue, which had gone out of use centuries earlier, that the memory that this was a synagogue was preserved by the local community literally for centuries until that building was rebuilt as a synagogue. And by the way, there was uh, in this period under Muslim rule a ban on building new synagogues. We don't know how much that was enforced, but there was a ban. But it was permitted to rebuild or renovate an already existing synagogue. And so we think that all of this kind of goes together to create this picture where we have this huge building that's built in the early 14th century, and then it's used into the 15th century. There's an enormous amount of wealth. Besides the size of the building, there's an enormous amount of wealth connected with this building. In the summer of 2018, to the south of this late medieval synagogue building, we found a hoard of over 350 gold and silver coins, including coins that were minted in places that have never been found in Israel before. There's actually a coin from Serbia, for example. A lot of the coins are from Venice. There are coins from Cyprus, indicating a huge amount of wealth flowing into this little village, and the hoard dates to the first half of the 15th century, exactly when the building was in use. By the late 15th century, the building had gone out of use for its original purpose. It starts to be robbed out. It starts to have installations for other purposes built inside it. And eventually, it kind of just goes out of use altogether and gets covered over. Well, well, another thing, we don't have time to talk, but real quickly, how did you find the coins? Um, we were very fortunate. This was, uh, I should mention that the coins were discovered in an area that is supervised to the south of the uh, synagogue building by uh, one of my graduate students at UNC Chapel Hill, Jocelyn Verney, giving her a shout out. Um, and so this was uh, in her in her area. You know, we dig very carefully and she and the students she was working with there were digging very carefully and came upon like, uh, you know, they could see one or two of the coins and v- did exactly what they were supposed to do. They didn't go, oh, look, and start, like, digging it all out. No, what we did is we actually uh, isolated the entire thing and took it out as one big block untouched with all the dirt around it, took it to a lab in Jerusalem, where then it was taken to a police station in Jerusalem to be x-rayed, before it was then taken back to the lab in Jerusalem, and it was forensically dismantled by the specialist in the lab in Jerusalem. And um, we now have the documentation. All the coins have been identified. Um, There's an article that's going to be published about the coins. And I'm pretty sure that one day that hoard will be displayed in the Israel Museum in Jerusalem. Well, um, which raises the question of, we got about a minute left (laughs) (laughs) and lots of things to uh, cover. But um, the the issue of the coins raises the question of what, you know, why were they why were they? Why were they there? Right. Yeah. So it's a it's a hoard. We don't know. We don't have any indication of why it was deposited. Right. Um, it, it, there are certain indications of the kind of hoard it is because the coins uh, are not spread out over huge amounts of times uh, of time. So there's there's a whole way you can an- analyze what kind of a hoard it is. I should mention, by the way, that the hoard included also pieces of jewelry, and one of the pieces of jewelry is a Jewish wedding ring from Western Europe. 
that dates to the 15th century. It's the first one ever found in an archaeological excavation in Israel. Well, what a mystery, and I wish we had time. If we had time, we would would, uh, figure out what really happened. Uh, Maybe we can use this as a chance to persuade Jody Magnus to come back and continue this discussion and maybe talk about her upcoming new book on on Jerusalem Mm -hmm. now and earlier. Right. (laughs) Right. Thank you. Have you got a title for that book? Well, the title is still provisional. It's Jerusalem Through the Ages from Its Beginnings to the Crusades. But I don't know that's what, what it will stay as. We'll look forward to talking to you about that book soon. And then some more about who cooked, because we haven't exhausted Mm -hmm. the topic yet. Thanks to Jody Magnus uh, for joining us again. Look forward to having you soon. And those of you who are listening, look forward to having you back same time right here. This is D.G. Martin with Who's Talking.